Thank you for choosing the podcast of East Haven Baptist Church in Brookhaven, Mississippi. For more information on the ministries of East Haven and to access videos and sermon notes from our services, visit www.easthaven.net. And today we are kind of doing a standalone sermon. And what I'd like for us to look at this morning is the idea of resentment. Now we use the word resent in ways that that word is not intended to be used. Many times we'll use the word resent and we will use it in a way in which we mean it. We mean it to, we say it to mean to hate something intensely. We say, well, I just resent that. I, 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 I'm resentful of that. I resent that comment. I, I resent this particular thing. I resent that food, we may say. That's not really the idea of resentment. Resentment is a very special, and I say special not in the sense of positive, it's a very unique, I'll say, volatile cocktail of emotions. Resentment is when something occurs, something is said, something is done, and there's a great sense of disappointment that you may have, and that disappointment leads you to feel very helpless in order to do anything to change anything about that. There may be anger involved with that. There's indignation involved with that. There may be a sense of unforgiveness involved with resentment. And you get all of these things and you, you mix them all together. And when you mix them all together, you end up with this very volatile, very corrosive type of, of mixture. And it's never settled. It's like you shake it well to mix all that up, but you, it never stops shaking. It just continually is stirred up. Literally, the word resentment, and this helped me, going back to my old Latin days when I was a Latin teacher, resentment literally comes from two Latin words, R-E, re, which means again, and then a verb that means to feel. Resentment literally means to feel it again. You feel the sting, you feel the hurt, you feel the pain, you feel the disappointment, you feel the anger again and again and again. You resent it. You feel it again. And so whenever we're in this resentful attitude or this resentful place, sometimes it's, it's usually very specific. Maybe it's toward a person or a place, a circumstance. And we may be fine about it when it comes to anything else, but when it comes to that, that just sort of sets you off. You may be resentful whenever you hear someone's name. I remember I was resentful toward a person at one point in time in my life. And I remember I met someone who had the same name. And they said, uh, Dustin, I'd like you to meet this guy. His name is so-and-so. And immediately I was like, mm, I don't like this guy. This guy had nothing negative so far between the two of us, except he had the same name of somebody that I was bearing some resentment toward. Maybe you're driving along and you see someone's car who reminds you of someone that reminds you of someone's car that you know, and it just sets you off. You may cut that person off in traffic and that person's like, what, what, what happened? And you're thinking you remind me of someone. And that's how resentment that's how it, how it does in our lives. That's what it does in our lives. It's corrosive and it spreads. And it's, it's just pervasive. It just invades every part, nook and cranny of our life. 
Well, how do we deal with resentment? How, do we, how are we set free from resentment? Well, I think whenever we read the book of Genesis and we read the account of Joseph, we find someone who could have easily been resentful and someone who at some point in time, though it's not recorded, may have had to deal with resentment. So let me give you a quick recap to get us to the point that we're looking at in Genesis 50. And it's a very quick recap. If you, if you know the story, you, you know what's coming. If this may be a good reminder for you or a refresher, uh, it's, it's one of those stories that would make a, a great movie. Uh, and I know some of you say, there already has been. I know that. I'm just saying. There's a reason it's a great movie. It would make a great, it's a, it's a great kind of narrative. Not narrative in the sense of fate, but narrative in the sense of the flow of the way that God works in the life of Joseph. Joseph comes before his brothers and Joseph says, I've had a dream. And in that dream, uh, as he lets them know his dream, it is pretty clear that that dream means that his brothers are going to bow down to him. Well, his brothers don't like that. So because he was also, Joseph was also their dad's favorite, they decide, first of all, they think, well, we're going to kill him. And then they decide, no, we'll just sell him into slavery. So they sell him to the Midianites. The Midianites end up going down to Egypt, and the captain of the guard by the name of Potiphar buys Joseph, and Joseph becomes a servant in Potiphar's house. Everything seems to be going pretty well, as well as to be expected, being a slave in someone's house in Egypt, until Potiphar's wife, who was attracted to Joseph, accuses Joseph wrongfully of rape. And so Joseph has now been wrongly accused in a foreign country, and now Joseph is taken and he's thrown into prison. And he's basically forgotten there in prison. And Pharaoh has a couple of his servants there in prison as well after some time. One of them is the cupbearer, the man who would taste the wine to make sure it wasn't poison. The other one was the baker, the royal baker. And they're talking to Joseph, and everything seems to be going well there in the prison. God's with Joseph, and God is making everything he does in the prison prosper. And these two servants are talking about their dreams, and they start talking about these dreams they've had. And the cupbearer says, I've had this dream. And Joseph listens to the dream, and he says, your dream means that you will be restored to your position of prominence in the royal household within three days. And the cupbearer thinks, that's great news. And the baker says, well, you know, I've had a dream. And he tells Joseph his dream. And Joseph says, not so good for you. You, you are going to be executed in three days' time. And you find that a little bit later, three days later, you find if you look in Genesis 40, chapter 20, or chapter 40, verse 20 or so, we find that it's on Pharaoh's birthday. Imagine that as a birthday present. Pharaoh's birthday, he releases the, the cupbearer, the wine taster, he's restored to, to his position, but he kills the baker. Happy birthday, Pharaoh. So he kills the baker, but Joseph had told the cupbearer, when you get back in the royal household, don't forget about me. I won't. But in his excitement, he forgets. And then sometime later, Pharaoh has a dream. And he says, I just wish somebody could interpret this dream. And that's when the cupbearer says, you know, I know a guy that does the whole dream thing. So they bring Joseph in and Joseph interprets the dream. And Joseph interprets the dream to let him know that there will be some years of plenty when the crops are coming in. But then there are going to be years of famine and you need to prepare for the years of famine during the years of plenty. 
And so Joseph gets promoted basically to prime minister of Egypt. And Joseph takes care of everything and all these people, their lives are saved. And that famine reaches all the way up to where Joseph's family lives. And now Joseph's family come down to Egypt to buy grain. Now, we won't get into all the details and all the permutations and all the little manipulations that take place, but Joseph plays this little cat and mouse game with them. They don't recognize Joseph as their brother because he dresses like an Egyptian and he, he walks like an Egyptian and he talks like Egyptian, all that stuff. So anyway, so he, he's, he, for all practical purposes in their minds, I mean, he's, he's an Egyptian. And then we find that finally Joseph reveals himself to his brothers And whenever Joseph's father dies, his brothers, when Jacob dies, his brothers get very concerned and they think he's going to take it out on us. Now that dad's gone, he was only nice to us because dad was here. And now that dad is gone, we're, we're going to be, we're, he's going to hurt us bad. Which brings us to Genesis 50 verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Now, do we know if Jacob actually gave this command? No. Maybe he did. Maybe they're making it up. We don't know. But the message was this, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, Please forgive the transgression of the servants of God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. Remember that dream Joseph had to begin with that got him all set this whole thing into, into motion? But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Now you say, well, where in there do I see anything about resentment? Well, we don't. Joseph was operating from a place where he's free of resentment. So how do we get free of resentment? How do we live a resentment-free life? Well, I think we should take some lessons from the life of Joseph. First of all, if you know God, you will know where you stand. If you know God, you, you, you know God and you will know exactly where you stand. Look at what Joseph says in verse 19. He says, do not fear for am I in the place of God? Joseph says, this ultimately is not my fight. Ultimately, this is between you and God. Ultimately, this is a God thing that we're having to deal with. And Joseph knows his place. I'm a created being. Yes, you did wrong to me, but ultimately, I know my place. And after I know, I know, I, I know my place, and the only reason I know my place is because I know God's place. God's in control. God's on his throne. This, the, ultimately, the offense is toward God. Listen to Romans 12, 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. Sometimes we say, yes, Lord, that's okay. I want you to repay, but will you please give me a ringside seat so I can watch it when you repay? I'm not, I, I'm not, I won't put my hand to it, but I definitely want to watch it when it happens. And so sometimes we have that, that idea that we want to do it ourselves. We want to put our hand to it. We want to fix it. We want to do something to set things right 
ourselves. Now, I'm not saying, let me, let me tell you what I'm not saying. If somebody has wronged you and you need to go and you need to talk to them, then you need to do that. You need to make that right as much as is possible for you. But there are some situations and some circumstances that it's not going to do any good. There are some circumstances where that might even be harmful. That might even be dangerous to go and talk to certain people. It could be. Now, we're going to talk later about how do you forgive somebody when they never, when they never ask. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But I was looking in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14. This is what Paul writes to Timothy. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. And then notice what Paul writes. Does he say, and uh, Timothy, I want you to go and be my guy and deal with him. No. He says, the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Just like Joseph, Paul knows his place. How does Paul know his place? Because he knows God's place. That, that sin is ultimately toward God, and God will deal with that in time. First Peter chapter 2, verse 23, Peter writing about Jesus. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued, listen to this phrase, entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He says the reason that Jesus could do what he did on the cross was because Jesus understood when all of these people were doing these things to him, when all these soldiers were beating him, when all of the Jewish leaders were falsely accusing him, Jesus understood, I can trust myself, I can trust my soul, I can trust my life to the one who judges justly. So whenever you find yourself that resentment growing, when you find yourself in that place where where you, you start saying, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that, and I'm going to get that person back, and I'm going to settle that up myself, and I've got a plan, and I'm going to, I'm going to tear them down behind the scenes, and I'm going to, I'm going to do a, kind of a character assassination on them, and I, or I'm going to physically try to seek uh, to do something to them in return. Can I just tell you, that means that I don't know when we think that way. We don't, I don't, you don't know your place. We don't know our place. I don't know my place because I don't understand God's place, that God is the one who ultimately is wrong. The wrong is ultimately against God himself. Secondly, when Joseph continues speaking to them, verse 20, he says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Do you know what Joseph did? Joseph did exactly what we're to do. That is, trust that your life is not in the hands of other humans, but in the hand of God. Ultimately, your life is not in the hands of anyone other than God. God is the sovereign Lord of the universe, and he has your life in his hands. And those things that have happened, God will use them. God is powerful enough that he can use any of those things that happen. In Genesis chapter 39, this is the story of Joseph we alluded to earlier. Genesis 39, verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Joseph is in prison, but God is with him. God's with him in the midst of that prison. In the midst of that jail cell, in the midst of that dungeon, God is with Joseph. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. 
There's Joseph and God saying, I'm looking out for you. God knew exactly when Joseph was in the pit and he was about to be sold into slavery. God was with him. And God's with him in the prison. And God's with him later on in the palace. God is with him throughout his life. And because God is with him, he can recognize that his life is in the hands of God. It's not in the hands of other humans. His life was not in the hands of the Midianites. His life was not in the hands of his brothers. His life was not ultimately in the hands of Potiphar, Potiphar's wife, or this prison warden, or or Pharaoh himself. It, It was not. His life is in the hands of God, and so are ours. Genesis chapter 45, this is the first time Joseph is having a conversation with his brothers. Genesis 45, starting in verse 4, Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Notice what he says. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Joseph understands. It's not ultimately you who sent me here. God sent me here for a purpose. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will neither be plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth to keep you alive, to keep alive for you many survivors. Verse 8, so it was not you who sent me here, but God. When you're able to say that about the situation that you found yourself in, that ultimately, it's not that person's hand who put you in that situation. Ultimately, God has allowed that. Or God is going to use that in a powerful way. And you say, oh, but it's so bad. It looks so hopeless. It looks so helpless. It looks so brutal. It looks so painful. Can I remind you? All of those things would be the absolute definition of the cross you look at the cross it looks totally hopeless you find our savior looking totally helpless you find all sorts of cruelty and all sorts of pain directed toward him and then the final blow was he's placed in a tomb that seems like it you don't get much more hopeless than the one who said that he is the savior of the world dead cold in a tomb yeah it seemed hopeless But yet, it's part of God's plan. And you find that Joseph understands this. Joseph understands that he can trust God through this whole thing. He was tested time and time and time again. And Joseph comes out on the other side trusting God's plan. You do realize forgiveness is an act of trust. Forgiveness is saying, God, I don't have to seek recompense myself. I don't have to seek vengeance myself. I don't have to set things right myself because I trust you. I will trust enough to forgive. Because ultimately, we're not in the hands of other humans. We're in the hands of God himself. Think about that backstory when we just did that recap. Think about the what if. What if Joseph had not had that dream? That initial dream that set his brothers off. Well, if Joseph hadn't had the dream... They wouldn't have been angry with him. And if Joseph's brothers had not been angry with him, then they wouldn't have sold him into slavery. Now, had he not been sold into slavery, he wouldn't have ended up in Potiphar's house. 
Now, if he hadn't ended up in Potiphar's house, then that would be, we would think that'd be a good thing because then he would not be falsely accused of rape. And if Joseph had not been falsely accused of rape, then Joseph, he would not have been placed in prison. But if he hadn't been placed in prison, he wouldn't have met the cupbearer and the baker. Now, let's say he didn't meet the cupbearer and the baker. Well, he wouldn't have interpreted their dreams. So if he hadn't interpreted their dreams, then Pharaoh would not understand there was somebody in the area that could interpret dreams. So if Pharaoh's dream had gone uninterpreted, then that means the famine would have rolled in and there, nobody would have been prepared for it. If nobody had been prepared for it, it would have wiped out all these people in Egypt. And not only would it have wiped out all these people in Egypt if nobody had been prepared for it, it would have wiped out all of Jacob's family, all of his sons, all of Joseph's brothers. They would have been wiped out. And if Joseph's line had been wiped out, then the line through which the Messiah would arise would be wiped out. And if the line through which the Messiah would arise, Jesus himself would arise, if that family line would have been wiped out, then Jesus would not have shown up. And if Jesus had not been born, then we would still be dead in our sins and trespasses. It's a really good thing that Joseph had that dream, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you see that ultimately God's got a plan. That's what Joseph understands. He sent, God sent me here to preserve a remnant. God sent me here to preserve this line. Did Joseph have all the understanding about the Messiah and all that through his line and everything? I mean, it was just, it was a shadowy understanding that we find there in that point in time in the Old Testament. But the idea is Joseph understands our lineage is going to go on because God sent me here and now here you are and now here we're able to eat and we're able to survive. And then we find that Joseph tells his family why don't you, you need to come down here to Egypt and live in Egypt? And that sets everything up. They start having children and grandchildren and generations start growing down there in Egypt. And that sets the whole thing up for whenever the ruler arises that doesn't know about Joseph. And then they go into slavery and then Moses comes along and we have that whole deliverance from Egypt taking place. God's preserving his plan. He's preserving his people. Because ultimately, it's not in the hands of people, it's in the hands of God himself. Romans 8, 28, Paul writes, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Notice what this verse does not say. It does not say all things are good. There are some really bad things. You look back over your life, there have been some really bad things. There have been some hard times, some disappointing times some hurtful times, some times of grief, sometimes where people wronged you. There have been times where you've been falsely accused. There have been times where people have, have talked about you or, or hurt you in some way, all these things. But can I tell you, God works all things together for good. The good, the bad, the light, the dark. He works them together. So if you just take the bad by itself, well, that's not working it together. Or if you just take the really good things by themselves, well, that's not working it together. God takes the good and the bad and everything in between, and he works them together for his ultimate good, for his ultimate, ultimate purpose. Now, understand what I'm saying. Whenever a bad thing happens, should you go, well, this isn't that bad? No, it's still bad. It still hurts. It's still painful, but there's meaning behind it. There's a purpose behind it. 
It doesn't have to be meaningless. It's it's not meaningless pain. It is purposeful pain. And but we understand that ultimately we're in the hands of God. We're not in the hands of, of people. Listen to Isaiah 41, verse 10. Fear not, for I am with you, the words of God. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you by his right hand. That term in the Bible that means a place of strength. I'm going to uphold you by my right hand. My strong right hand. I'm going to uphold you. I'm going to walk with you. Just like Joseph was in the prison, just like Joseph was in a pit, just like Joseph was in this place and that place, and God was with him, so too God will be with us. And we can trust that. Can I just tell you, how would your, let me just ask you, how would your life be different if that painful situation from your past, if you would sit there and say, God, I'm going to trust that you're going to redeem this. I'm going to trust that you're going to use this. I'm going to give this to you and I'm going to trust that ultimately my life is in your hands, not in the hands of a situation, not in the hands of a person, not even in the hands of my own mistakes that I've made, but Lord, I'm going to trust that it's in your hands. How would things look different if you approach that situation that way? Joseph can avoid resentment because Joseph understands ultimately he's in God's hands. And then we get to a really difficult part. I know you go, really difficult? Goodness sake, this has been difficult up to now, I know, but hang on. Look at verse 21. Look at what he says to his brothers. Do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So he's showing them grace. Now, the New Testament corollary for us is that if you've received forgiveness from Christ, Forgive like Christ. And I know we say, yeah, but Joseph, he didn't. I mean, he wasn't, he wasn't a Christian. He was, I, I understand that. But I'm saying the command that comes to us is reflected in the, the sacrifice that Christ has made for us. When Joseph forgives, he is showing them the grace that God has shown him. He is showing them grace and he's showing them kindness. And he is forgiving them. He is, he is letting that go and turning it over to God, he's trusting those first two things are absolutely true that we just talked about. He understands that ultimately it's, it's the hands of, it's, he's in the hands of God. He understands he's not in the place of God. So he's able to forgive and he deals kindly with them. We here on this side of the cross, we understand that that kindness and that grace that we show stems from The fact that God is gracious and kind, but also the fact that God's graciousness and his kindness and his mercy have been shown through us through the person of Jesus on the cross. Luke chapter 6, verse 35. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. We are to show mercy. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Forgiving one another as God in Christ 
forgave you. Colossians 3.12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Does it make anybody else uncomfortable that word must is there? So you should forgive. So it'd be a good idea to forgive. So it might be beneficial for you to forgive. No, so you also must forgive. I was reading a quote recently by Neil Anderson. He wrote this, most of the ground that Satan gains in the lives of Christians is due to unforgiveness. Most of the ground that Satan gains in the lives of Christians is due to unforgiveness. And then a quote that I've gone back to often, it's by a man named David Siemens. You've probably heard me use this quote before. He wrote this, many years ago, I was driven to the conclusion that the two major causes of most emotional problems among evangelical Christians are these, two major causes, the failure to understand, receive, and live out God's unconditional grace and forgiveness, and the failure to give out that unconditional love, forgiveness, and grace to other people. We read, we hear, we believe a good theology of grace, but that's not the way we live. The good news of the gospel of grace has not penetrated to the level of our emotions. To understand the grace and the forgiveness that has been given to us through Jesus, and then turning around and extending that forgiveness to others. The lack of doing either one of those leads to all sorts of emotional problems. Can I tell you what it leads to? It leads to resentment. It will lead to feeling it again. And when you're feeling it again, can I just tell you, it's hard to feel anything else. And so we find that the word of God tells us that we are to forgive. Now, I know sometimes people say, but I don't, and this is the number one issue that I run into a lot of times when I talk to people about forgiveness. They'll say something like this, but I don't feel like forgiving. Okay. Well, you let your feelings catch up, but you make a choice to forgive. And then sometimes you have to remind yourself that you have chosen to forgive. And you say, that sounds like a, a mental game. It's not a mental game. No more it's a mental game than reminding yourself of who you are in Christ. So you remind yourself of the truth. So let's say you forgive someone. You say, this person did this wrong, and maybe this person's asked for forgiveness. Maybe they haven't. And that's a, that's a terrible misunderstanding sometimes when we say, I cannot forgive them until they ask for forgiveness. Well, no, that's not true. You can forgive them even if you never, they never ask for forgiveness. I've, I've talked to people before, uh, sat down and had conversations with people over the years who have said, I cannot forgive one of my relatives for something they did to me whenever they were still alive and now they're dead. So I can never forgive them because they can never ask for forgiveness. So they think that they're stuck in this. No, you can give forgiveness whether or not someone asks. You can and by the way, as the old saying goes, withholding forgiveness is like eating poison and waiting for the other person to die. It doesn't work. You just keep poisoning yourself with this corrosive cocktail of resentment. And so we find that biblically speaking, that forgiveness can happen all in an instant, but then those feelings of forgiveness, they may lag behind. So I have to remind myself. I remember there was one time I had a very hard time forgiving someone, and I just had to remind myself. Every time it came up, I would just remind myself, God, thank you. Thank you for, for pointing this out, God. Thank you for pointing out back then when I forgave that person. I chose to forgive this person. And God, please help me 
to remember the choice that I made to forgive them. And you say, well, how many times do you have to do that that first day? I don't know, about 500. And then maybe the next day you have 400. Maybe the next day it's 450. I don't know. Maybe you go back up. But you keep reminding yourself, I've chosen to forgive this person. I don't have to be held captive to this situation anymore. The interesting thing is sometimes it's the worst and the most hurtful things, the most painful circumstances, the most difficult people, that it is as though that we just kind of chain them to ourselves and we go through life dragging them along. Can I just tell you, I don't know of any situation that was painful that I enjoyed so much that I want to relive it again and again and again. You, you have to forgive in order to be set free from that. It's been said that in forgiveness, we set the prisoner free, and then we find out when we set the prisoner free, the prisoner was us. We were those prisoners that we end up setting free. So maybe you have to remind yourself to forgive. Maybe it's just one of those things where you, you want to go to that person and tell them, I just want you to know that I, I forgive you. Maybe, maybe that, that situation is, is far too dangerous, or maybe that person is removed from the situation, or maybe that person is long since dead, and you can still say, you know what, I choose to forgive that person. I'm going to forgive them, and then in doing so, I get set free. There's a passage in Genesis 41 And it's something that happens before Joseph's brothers show up. All right, so Joseph hasn't had this conversation with his brothers. Genesis 41, verse 51. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. So his firstborn son, he refers to him as Manasseh. For he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. 52, verse 52 of Genesis 41. The name of the second he called Ephraim. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. It might be helpful to know that in the time, at this time, many times people would name their children based upon the activity of God in their lives. So his firstborn son that he has in Egypt, before he talks with his brothers, before everything gets set right, his, he names his firstborn son Manasseh, which means forgetfulness. God's made me forget all my hardship. Now, did Joseph remember it? Of course he remembered it, but he didn't consciously choose to bring it back up to mind. He's made me forget about the sting. He's made me forget about the hardship my brothers have done against me. He made me forget about all these difficulties. He made me forget about these false accusations. He's made me forget about all these things. I no no longer think about them. I'm no longer dwelling on them. He names his firstborn Manasseh. He names his next child Ephraim, which means blessed, doubly blessed. He says, because God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. God has made me fruitful, Ephraim, double blessed, fruitfulness. You see what happens? The forgetfulness comes before the fruitfulness. Whenever he's able to forgive and let it go, God says, now we can do something. It's, we want it the other way. God, make it fruitful. God, redeem all these things, fix everything, set it all right, and let me see how it's going to turn out. And then I'll forget. Then I'll forgive then I'll get past it. No, we trust that God has a plan and we turn it over to his hands. Sometimes I'm wanting Ephraim for Manasseh. No, we have to turn it over to God and give it to him and allow him to take it, allow him to use it. And then God will work it toward his end because all things work together for good for those who loved him love him and those who are called according to his purpose.
God's going to work it toward the good. We have to give him all the pieces, though. So I don't know. Uh, I'm just be really transparent with you. It, it was middle of the night, about probably three and a half weeks ago, that I was, I was thinking about. I, was, I woke up in the middle of the night, and I was thinking about today, and I was thinking about the sermon for today, because I know some of you are saying, how did this come about? I was, I was laying in bed, and I was just thinking about today, because I knew we had finished up our series, and Easter is going to be starting soon. We'll be starting a series leading up to Easter. And immediately, I just sensed God leading in the direction of resentment. And can I be, let me just be really transparent. I said, God, nobody wants to hear about that. I don't even know if I want to talk about resentment. God, that's not a real, you know, not a real happy kind of cheery kind of sermon. And God just kept on saying, that's it. And so as, as the days have unfolded and God's just, God has shown me time and time again over the last few weeks that of course God's ahead of us. God knows exactly what he's doing. So I don't, I don't know anything specific. I don't know anything particular. All I know is this is where God had led. And God had to point out some areas of my life and said, hey, and say, there, there's, there's a little resentment going on there. There's a little root of bitterness there. You need to kill that before it grows any bigger. You need to, you need to get rid of that. You need to pull that up. You need to put some, some spiritual herbicide on those particular things. So I don't know where you are. I don't know what God may be doing in your life. I don't know what you may be wrestling with. I don't know what you may be, what, what may be weighing on you. I don't know what old hurt or recent hurt may be hounding you at night. But can I tell you, you can be set free from resentment. You don't have to live with it. You can be set free from resentment because Christ died to set us free from our sin. And we can know the forgiveness found in Christ. And then if we know the forgiveness found in Christ, we extend that same forgiveness to others because we are in Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you. God, there may be some people here this morning that they don't, they don't know Christ as Savior. They may be mis- wrestling with resentment. They may be wrestling with lots of other things. And Father, I pray that they would recognize by your word that if, if they're not in Christ, they're separated from you. They're separated from a life with you. They're separated from eternal life. Father, as they've heard today, Jesus came, died a cruel death on a cross, bore our sins, took our place. And if we trust that he paid the price, he paid the penalty for our sins on the cross, if they trust that he did that and ask that they be forgiven of their sins, and turn from those sins and turn toward Christ alone, surrender their lives to Christ, they will be saved. Father, we give you thanks for that promise. And Father, I pray today would be the day that that somebody would make that decision to follow Christ. Father, there are people here who have known Christ, some for a short period of time, some they've been in a relationship with Jesus for a very long time. And in a group this size, Father, I know there are some people who are wrestling with resentment. They're wrestling through unforgiveness. They're wrestling through turning things over to you. They're wrestling through the pain, the indignation, the anger, the disappointment. Father, it may be a recent hurt. It may be a distant 
memory that just keeps coming back up. Father, I pray that today would be the day that they would begin to live a resentment-free life by the power that is found in extending the forgiveness that has been offered and extended to us by Jesus himself. So, Father, I pray you'd do just that. That you'd challenge us, you'd change us, you'd make us like your son, even in the way we forgive. So, Father, we give this time of decision to you. Father, we pray that you would give boldness and strength to anyone who needs to make any sort of decision. And we leave it in your hands. And it's in Jesus' name we ask these things.